We'll read together from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So far in chapter 1, we've seen Nehemiah's love for the church as he has expressed care and concern for her, inquiring of the church there in Jerusalem from his brother Hananiah. We've seen so far in chapter 1 as well that this love for the church has materialized in the life of Nehemiah in prayer for the church. As the bulk of chapter 1 is actually the recorded prayer of Nehemiah in response to the update or the situation report that he received of the condition of the people of God and of the city of God back in Jerusalem. And so let's read chapter 2 and let's see what now naturally flows out of this love and prayer for the church. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me, according to the good hand of my God upon me. Let's pray briefly together once again. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your good hand would be upon us now as we come to your word and we sit under the preaching and teaching of it. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and behold marvelous things from your word. Lord, that you would give us thirsty hearts that are eager to soak up all that you have in store for us. We pray, Lord, that you'd lead us and guide us by your spirit. Lead us and guide us into truth. And as you do, sanctify us in that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember as a child, one of my favorite games was Duck, Duck, Goose. Imagine that many of you have played that game as well. I don't know if there's a different Canadian version. Maybe you pick different animals. Maybe something with bear, bear, moose. I'm not quite sure. 
But at least when I was a child, the game was duck, duck, goose. And we loved playing the game because you could walk around in a circle as many times as you wanted, touching people on the heads, calling them ducks. And then when you were ready to run, you could call out the goose. It was a fun and oftentimes high-intensity game. Could you imagine playing that game without the goose? Imagine just playing duck-duck. It would be the most stupid game ever. You just walk around, touch people on the head, and call them ducks. The game would almost... In fact, it would be entirely pointless. Well, that's what it's like being a Christian who prays and prays and only ever prays. In fact, praying and praying without doing is like playing duck, duck, goose without the goose. Now, as I say that, I also want to make some very important qualifications. For some, prayer is all they can do. In fact, there are some who are likely lying in their hospital beds even now, knocking on death's doorstep, all physical strength gone, no movement of their bodies whatsoever. Maybe their minds even have grown dull or have succumbed to Alzheimer's. And all they can do is pray, even simple three-word prayers. I'm not talking about these kinds of exceptional cases. But I'm talking about the general rule of faith and of life for the people of God. I'm talking about for those of us who are able-bodied with some measure of health and strength and physical resources, with some measure of mental functioning power? Is prayer all that we can do to serve the church? Now, once again, I want to make an all-important qualification here. When I say, is prayer all we can do to serve the church? I don't mean to belittle or disparage prayer at all. Or even knock it down on the list of importance. In fact, we've seen already from the book of Nehemiah that prayer has been of first importance to this man of God and servant of God. Nor am I seeking to put prayer at odds with anything else, as if prayer should be or could be replaced by something else or something better. But what I mean to ask is, is prayer the only duty that we are called to as Christians to live faithfully before our God? As those who have an interest in Christ and in his church and the well-being of the church. Is prayer our only privileged responsibility? I want us to look at our text today and see how we can answer this question from the life of Nehemiah. And as we do, let's refresh our memories a little bit by beginning there in verse 11 of chapter one. It's here that we have the end of Nehemiah's recorded prayer of that first chapter. And what we see in this last part of his prayer is something we didn't cover last time. 
And that is Nehemiah requesting mercy for a very first practical step that he is about to take in his official role and position as cupbearer to the king. In other words, Nehemiah is requesting mercy from God to be equipped in order to be instrumental and effective in the change for which he has just prayed. And so Nehemiah, we see there, is requesting mercy. And we see, of course, as the last phrase of chapter 1 mentions, that he was the king's cupbearer. And this brings us up to speed then as we move into chapter 2. And we see that it's now come to pass in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him. And so Nehemiah is likely doing his cupbearer duties here, as he would often be in the presence of the king, serving him wine. We need to see Nehemiah here as one who was a trustworthy man. That his integrity, that his diligence as a man of God has given him occasion to arise to this respectable and highly trusted position in the Persian kingdom. The reason why I say a cupbearer would be a trusted man is because the king would be trusting him to not poison his drink. That's one way that kings were often assassinated. That rules were overthrown. So Nehemiah was a trusted man. That he wouldn't poison the king's drink. Or, on a lighter note, that he wouldn't put out the king's dirty laundry. Or when the king became merry with wine and his lips became loose, the cupbearer wouldn't go about sharing the king's confidential business. Or go about speaking maliciously of the more vulnerable, less guarded side of the king that the cupbearer would be privy to observe. And so that's Nehemiah's role. That's something of his character. He's a highly trusted Jewish man in the official royal court of the Persian king. And he holds this position to serve King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes, the very name Artaxerxes, means very powerful. And indeed, this king was very powerful. By earthly standards, he was king over a large swath of the known world. To look at a map today, it would be essentially Iran all the way west to the Mediterranean Sea. That would have been the realm of King Artaxerxes' dominion. During this time period. And so Nehemiah there at the end of chapter 1 requested mercy to address the very powerful king to which he was cupbearer. It's important for us to note then that before he ever spoke to this very powerful king, Nehemiah bent the knee to the all-powerful king to ask for his mercy first. To ask for mercy before coming to Artaxerxes, who had not previously shown himself favorable to the request that Nehemiah was about to make. 
If you can remember back to Ezra chapter 4 that we read earlier this evening for our reading, there in verse 21 of Ezra 4, this very king wrote these words. Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Those were the written words of King Artaxerxes and the last words that he wrote in an official decree concerning the work that Nehemiah was about to bring up. And so here at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, Nehemiah is about to approach the king of Persia, the office and the king of that office that had previously ordered an all-stop and a cease work there in Jerusalem. And I think we need to recognize at this point that Nehemiah is not only a man of integrity and trustworthiness, but there's also an admirable part to Nehemiah's faith at this point. That he prayed for God to grant him mercy in the sight of this king. And the fact that he did shows us what he didn't do. And it's something that I think we are often prone to do when we think of a situation that arises or we recognize a need arising. Nehemiah did not pray that God would raise someone up to see to the work that needed to be done. Do you recognize that? If you were to scour through chapter 1 and chapter 2, at least the part that we just read, you would not find Nehemiah saying, wow, things are really bad in Jerusalem. Wow, the church there is really struggling. God, raise people up to do the work. God, send someone to go and do the work there. Nehemiah asked for God's emboldening and empowering and equipping mercy for himself so that he could use his own role, his own position, to labor on behalf of the church. Nehemiah was willing to be a part of the solution to the problem that he was presented with, or at least be one of the instruments through which God would bring about a solution. And that's a lesson we can all take to heart as we're following the life of Nehemiah. When there's a problem in the church, and there will be problems, And we're usually pretty good about identifying those problems unless we are the problem. And then our identification skills can uh, usually take a dive. But how good are we? Are we as good at identifying our own roles and positions, our own responsibilities, as much as we are identifying the problems around us? Are we just as good at identifying our own giftings or the ways in which God may be wanting to stretch us and develop us in our positions that he's placed us in so that we can be a part of the solution? Well, this was Nehemiah's disposition 
that he wanted to be a person that the Lord would use. And so he requested mercy to be used by the Lord in his precise position. Nehemiah didn't become a distant critic of the church. Oh, why don't they just do this? Why don't they just do that? How could they? What's wrong with them? He was willing to roll up his sleeves and say, God, put me to work. Don't let me suffer from the bystander effect where I just watch problems and think that other people will take care of them. Lord, help me, grace me, embolden me to be a part of the solution. That's the kind of man that's emerging in this text. We see this continues the trajectory there in chapter 2. You see that although Nehemiah has prayed there in chapter 1, he's still saddened by the estate of Jerusalem there in chapter 2. So much so that the king notices the sadness of his face. Nehemiah was wearing his affections for the church on his sleeve, so to speak. And what we need to remember about Persian custom from our time spent in the book of Esther which was under the reign of Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, another Persian king, is that it wasn't proper to be saddened in the presence of the king. It wasn't proper to wear a gloomy face in the presence of a Persian king. In fact, the Persians thought it was impossible to be in the presence of the king and not be brimming with joy. And not be radiant with happiness. In fact, that's part of the reason we recall of why Esther sent Mordecai clothing. So he could take off his sackcloth, that clothing, their costume of sorrow. And put on clothes that would make him appear more joyful and happy. We see that Nehemiah is in the presence of this Persian king. And he's not wearing a plastic smile. He's not wearing a happy facade. But he is showing forth his deep concern and care for the church, even as he's serving wine to the king, who is likely becoming merry by this point. We see that the king of Persia not only notices Nehemiah's sadness, but then he begins to inquire as to the source of his cupbearer's sadness. And at this inquiry, we see dread come over Nehemiah. And this is for good reason. This wasn't merely a a breach in, in protocol in terms of him being sad instead of happy in the presence of the king. But Nehemiah understood something of the absolute authority that Persian kings had. So we do well to remember as well from the book of Esther that she even told Mordecai, as he told her to go before the king and make requests before him, she knew that she was doing so at the risk of her own life. That even as a queen, she could be snuffed out if she made a request to the king that was unpleasing to him or displeasing to him. And so Nehemiah is filled with dread as he's not only now sad in the presence of the Persian king, but he's about to make a request. 
a request to the king who had not been sympathetic in times past to the work and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. If a queen can be snuffed out immediately, then certainly a cupbearer wouldn't fare any better. But this is the moment for which Nehemiah prayed. He prayed for this precise encounter, as we saw in verse 11 of chapter 1. And in the wake of the prayer, we see that the mighty king, Artaxerxes, overlooks Nehemiah's breach of protocol and actually shows genuine interest in his sorrow. And so Nehemiah, there in verse 3, speaks to the king. Nehemiah lives in faith in light of his prayer for mercy as he doesn't hold back from speaking his heart to the king of Persia. Now he certainly wasn't without fear as dread overcame him. But here, as it always does, we see that faith beats fear. He believed that the merciful God would actually grant him the mercy for which he prayed. Nehemiah, we see here, does not hold back from speaking to the king the very thing that's on his heart. Because Nehemiah had prayed for this precise moment. Nehemiah understood something here that I know we often forget when we pray. That prayers to the Heavenly Father from his children are not empty words that fall on deaf ears or fall into powerless hands. But prayers that we send up as the children of God come to a God who can even direct king's hearts like a watercourse, as Proverbs tells us. Prayer to the Heavenly Father is prayer to one who commands all things for the good of his children and who delights to give his children good things when they ask. Of course, Jesus taught this very same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Nehemiah had asked the Lord God of heaven for mercy, and he lived as one who knew the reality Of the God who hears. That God loves to give good things to those who ask him. And so Nehemiah, overcoming fear with faith, speaks to the inquiry of the king. And we see that he doesn't forget his place as he speaks to the king's inquiry. He doesn't jettison that Persian formality as he starts off his response. May the king live forever. Nehemiah maintains his decency and his respectful posture towards the king, even during this time of sorrow. His sadness doesn't make him bitter or devoid of manners. But after the proper address, we need to see here that Nehemiah doesn't hold back from explaining the sadness of his face. How could he not be sad when his fatherland lay in ruins? And I think more specifically, the the force of Nehemiah's argument that proves convincing, at least in part, towards Artaxerxes, is the mention of the tombs of his fathers. How can I not be sad when the place of my father's tombs lies waste? 
throughout the Near East, tombs, especially the tombs of one's forefathers, were considered sacred. And so we see the wisdom granted to Nehemiah here as he had prayed for mercy. This mercy begins to manifest itself in the wisdom and the tact that Nehemiah possesses in formulating this response to King Artaxerxes. He appeals to the universally important tombs of the fathers, something that the king even could relate to and identify with in a deep and personal way. So we see the innocency and the wisdom and the respect and the prudence wrapped together in this prayerful answer as it begins to unfold before King Artaxerxes. But then the king makes another inquiry there in verse 4. And the king said to me, what do you request? This time it's what Nehemiah might request on account of the situation and the corresponding sadness that he possesses. And then it happens so quickly and so succinctly that you might have missed it when we read it the first time. But after the king's request, we see that Nehemiah prays once again. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Before Nehemiah answers the king once again, he prays on the spot, in the moment, almost as if it were as natural as breathing, as one might breathe between sentences. Nehemiah is praying before his next sentence out of his mouth. We often are told that we should think before we speak, and that's certainly true. But what we see here with Nehemiah is that Nehemiah thinks to pray before he speaks. An even better example for us to emulate. And there's one more truth that I want to point out here in verse 4 before we move on. Not only does Nehemiah pray before he answers, but we see that once again he is praying to the God of heaven. I didn't point this out last time. This is not the first time that we see Nehemiah referring to the God of heaven. We saw that back in verse 5 of chapter 1. But it's important for us to know that this particular phrase, the God of heaven, shows up predominantly in books like Nehemiah, Ezra, as we read from earlier, Daniel, and Jonah. And if you understand something of these books, you understand that these are books in which the people of God are living under foreign rule and power. They're living under the foreign rule and power of a king that's not a king of Israel or Judah. Or if you know the book of Jonah, it's primarily a book about the Assyrians as Jonah is to go to Nineveh and Jonah is interacting with uh, sailors as he's on the sea. And he tells them who he's a prophet of, the God of heaven. And so it's a, it's a phrase that gets used primarily outside of the borders or boundaries of the land of Israel. It's important to understand then that this 
God of heaven language was an expression to denote the recognition of the supreme majesty of the one living and true God that had jurisdiction even beyond the borders of Israel. Almost every single foreign place had many earthly gods, gods of different earthly elements, rain gods and gods for the crops and gods for fertility, all these different gods of the earth. And sometimes even just very specific geographical or tribal or regional gods that didn't have jurisdiction beyond the dominion of the king's kingdom. But not so the God of heaven. And so that's who Nehemiah prays to, the one living and true God, over all other earthly gods, which are no gods at all. So that's what we know about the prayer. We know the context in which it comes. It's in a brief moment before Nehemiah responds to the king. And we know to whom this prayer was prayed. Let's see what comes in the wake of this split second prayer. We see Nehemiah's request there in verse 5. And it's a request to the king to be sent in order to rebuild or to partake of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We must read this request in light of previous revelation once again, especially concerning this particular issue. We already mentioned Ezra 4 and verse 21, in which the king had stated that he would not allow rebuilding to take place unless he commanded it. But before that, we read the letter of Reham and Shimshai the scribe. And I won't reread that letter to you, but I do want to summarize it. And if you want to follow along, you can go back to Ezra 4. Five points emerge from that letter that Shimshai the scribe wrote. And that this was the letter that convinced King Artaxerxes for the building to cease. The first point that Shimshai and Rehum make is that Jerusalem is a rebellious city. A rebellious and evil city. There in verse 12 of Ezra 4. And if rebuilt, the king would receive no tax or tribute or custom to his treasury. The lifeline or that bloodline of wealth into his treasury would stop flowing. That's verse 13. And of course, this would bring the king dishonor. Verse 14. And rebuilding the rebellious city would be resurrecting a city that has done much harm to other nations. The city wasn't safe. And fifthly, the rebuilding of the city would mean the king would be relinquishing his dominion beyond the Jordan River. When you put all this together, there is no earthly reason why the king would grant this request to Nehemiah. What's in it for him? He's shrinking his kingdom. He's shrinking his bank account. He's essentially funding a potential threat on the horizon. Nothing, according to his understanding, especially given the breakdown of that letter, 
that informed his understanding. Nothing in his understanding would have contributed to him granting Nehemiah permission to go and be sent to the city of his father's tombs and to begin the rebuilding. We don't see this request from Nehemiah as merely a reversal of a decree as if that wasn't big enough. But he's requesting an entire ideological shift. And a shift that would bring no foreseen benefit whatsoever to the Persian king or his kingdom. But in verse 6, we see that permission is granted. Permission is granted in a subtle way as the king and the queen sitting beside him, not Esther, different time period. Simply asks him, how long will your journey be? (laughs) And when will you return? These aren't merely questions for more information. This is actually the king granting Nehemiah permission. You see the approval of him taking that journey in these very questions. All Nehemiah had to do was set a time for his return, which he does there by the end of verse 6. We see Nehemiah summarizing this event here that it pleased the king to send him or that it was good to the king to send him. And as we move into verses 7 and 8, we see the same theme of goodness continue to unfold. Not only had Nehemiah's request seem good to the king there in verse 6, Nehemiah takes the opportunity now to appeal to the king once again with a follow-up request. If it pleases or if it is good to the king. And that request is twofold in verses 7 and 8. The first request is for safety. The second request is for supplies. The request for safety in verse 7 there is safe passage to Judah through the means of official orders or letters from the king, government documents, so that Nehemiah can make the trek safely as he would have to travel 1,400 kilometers to Jerusalem from Susa. And the request in verse 8 is for supplies, once again requiring documentation or a letter, this time to be given to the right individual in the right place for the right things needed for the city of God to be rebuilt. And as swiftly as these two requests are made, the requests are once again granted by the king of Persia. As Nehemiah makes certain it seemed good to the king to give him what he requested. And the wonderful thing here is that Nehemiah doesn't leave us guessing as to why the king responded so quickly and so generously and so decisively 
to grant Nehemiah the letters he needed and the supplies and the safety that he required. Nehemiah testifies to the reason why there in verse 8. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. It was only good in the sight of the king to give Nehemiah these things, not because it personally benefited the king in any way, shape, or form, at least in any foreseeable way for him. But we see in these last words of verse 8, the only explanation as to why the very powerful king Artaxerxes would be willing to do something so contrary to every earthly king of his day and age, and even ours today. And that's because the good hand of God was upon his servant, praying, praying, and doing in faith that the God of heaven actually hears prayer and answers prayer and loves to work all things for the good of his church. That's the only reason that we have in our text as to the king's response and the behavior here. There's no other reason to be found except for that his good hand, God's good hand, was upon Nehemiah. Well, as we conclude this evening, two simple applications. And you know what they are. The first is devote yourselves to praying. That's what we've seen with Nehemiah. In fact, we were given that time reference at the beginning of chapter 2 there. It came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. Well, we also had a time reference in the beginning of chapter 1. That it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. We see that four months has transpired between these two references to time. Four months is the idea that we're to have Nehemiah praying for this opportunity that transpired in chapter 2. Four months he had his people and he had the city of God on his heart. Praying that God would show him mercy, strengthen him, and present to him the perfect opportunity to act in faith. And that's the second application for us. Not only are we to devote ourselves to prayer, but as we pray and pray, we must also do. For that's what Nehemiah does. He not only prays, but he does. And he does for the good of the church. And as Nehemiah does this, and as he encourages us to this very activity, we can be even more fully encouraged by raising our gaze from Nehemiah to the servant of God and to the perfect man of God who was God in the flesh. For in the life of Jesus Christ, we see these very same Realities that Nehemiah only foreshadows. Jesus, as we read from John chapter 17 earlier, that was a glimpse into his prayer life. He was one who prayed for those that God gave him. He prayed for their salvation. 
And he prayed that he would not lose a single one of them, but he would glorify the Father in them and that he would unite them together in one. And then he went on and prayed for those who would believe in him. He prayed for us. He prayed for our salvation. He prayed for our union with the triune God. But Jesus didn't just merely pray for his people. He didn't just merely pray for the church that is here today and was here in Jerusalem, struggling in Nehemiah. Yes, Jesus prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. But then he went to the cross. And he actually procured the very salvation for which he prayed. We have a Savior who has prayed and prayed and done marvelously for the sake of the church. He's prayed for her. He's acted to save her. And so as Christians, we're not merely called to pray as we follow our Lord and Savior, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as those who follow in his steps. Yes, let's pray and pray even as Jesus prayed. Let's remember to do and to do in accordance with all that we pray. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to be prayerful people. But even as you make us prayerful people, Lord, help us to act in faith in light of the prayers that we pray. Help us to see Nehemiah's life as a foreshadowing of the life of Jesus Christ. The one who prayed for us. The one who lived for us. And the one who died for us. So Lord, help us to be prayerful people. And help us to be people who prayerfully serve. For your glory and for the good of the church. In Jesus' name, amen.